1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Amid the global scramble for treatments that might shorten or stop COVID-19, one idea goes back a century, using the blood of people who have recovered from it. We take a look at the trials that are underway around the world. and. Two fabulously wealthy twins, family infighting, allegations of secret recordings in one of the world's swankiest hotels. It would all be mere whispers if the drama between Britain's most reclusive octogenarians weren't playing out in court this week. But first... In the Philippines, communist insurgents have been engaged in a conflict with the government for more than 50 years. But in late March, they temporarily put down their arms, after UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres called for a global ceasefire in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. It is time to put armed conflict on lockdown and focus together on the true fight of our
2: lives. To warring parties, I say, pull back from hostilities, put aside mistrust and animosity, Silence the guns, stop the artillery end the airstrikes.
1: To the surprise of international observers, a number of armed groups around the world heeded his call. It seemed a historic opportunity. But now a spat between America and China is derailing attempts to turn Mr. Gutierrez's suggestion into a formal UN resolution.
3: The proposed UN ceasefire resolution could offer some hope to regions and countries ravaged by seemingly perpetual war, places like Yemen or Sudan or Colombia.
1: Richard Cockett is a senior editor at The Economist.
3: However, despite the early optimism, the possibility of a global ceasefire is looking ever less likely due to squabbling between the superpowers at the United Nations.
1: So what about that early optimism? I mean, who was it that heeded the call?
3: There were 12 countries around the world in which armed groups said that they'd listened to Guterres and were going to call a temporary ceasefire. And these included countries with very old and intractable conflicts like Colombia and the Philippines and Sudan. And some governments heeded the call to some 16 countries took notice. That was pretty good. And the idea was that these countries would then have some relief from fighting and say would be better equipped to fight the coronavirus.
1: But as you say, some of these were some of the the thorniest conflicts on the planet. Why do you suppose those groups were so swift to answer this diplomatic call for peace?
3: Generally, the understanding is that the groups that answered the call were groups that wanted to or were interested in talking with governments to end those conflicts. So they wanted a pretext. They wanted cover to explore ways of coming out of violence. And the UN, for this very noble reason of helping to combat the pandemic, that was a good reason to do so. That certainly applies to many of the cases on the UN's list. In a lot of cases, of course, it was in their self-interest, perhaps, to call a truce at that time. But not in all cases. Sometimes it did actually look like they wanted to do the right thing and help their countries or their own people overcome
1: this awful pandemic. And so why hasn't that early optimism proved well-founded? Why haven't those commitments held?
3: Well, I think what most people agreed was that for this to work or to build, you needed momentum. And the best momentum would come from the UN. And so very soon after Guterres' comments, the 15 members of the Security Council, including the five permanent members, started meeting to get a good resolution out, calling for backing up Guterres' words with solid resolutions and sanctions against people who might break ceasefires even. So negotiations went on for weeks and weeks. Various countries were a bit reluctant, like the US and Russia, who both claimed that such a ceasefire would limit their ability to counter-terrorist strikes from IS, for instance, in Iraq or Syria. But eventually, it's all been cleared. The wording so far is for a 90-day ceasefire, which is admirable, but the US and China are bogged down in a dispute over the role of the WHO in the pandemic, which has been very contentious. The Chinese want to mention the WHO in the preamble, and the Americans don't, because they hold the WHO largely responsible for making the pandemic so bad in the first Place.
1: And so, with the prospects of something of a global peace there on the table, it's just that dispute that you think is holding all this up?
3: That is the dispute holding up the passage of a resolution. I don't want at all to convey the impression that just passing a UN resolution would solve all these problems and indeed create world peace. But the thing is that many people were surprised that anybody heeded Guterres' words in the first place. So here, for the first time, you did actually have a window for action, for negotiations to start, etc. Of course, it takes two to negotiate. In many of these cases, the governments would accuse the other side of bad faith and vice versa. But Without any tailwind or sanction from the top, from the UN Security Council, the energy created by this was always going to dissipate. And for other countries of the UN, the French, the British and everyone else, it's become intensely frustrating because we could have had this resolution weeks ago, but two of the five permanent members are now involved in this standoff about something completely different, which means that this resolution cannot be passed.
1: So in heeding Mr. Guterres' call at the outset, a lot of groups put their arms down sort of preemptively. I mean, how does that look now that everything's held up with this dispute?
3: They did declare their ceasefires. And in some cases, for governments who they're fighting with also declared ceasefires. So you had a cessation of hostilities. But already, this has all been breaking down. So two of the armed groups, the ELN in Colombia, a leftist guerrilla group, and the communists in the Philippines, both of whom have been fighting their various liberation struggles for 50, 60 years, they've gone back to fighting. Both claim that their governments weren't in interested in talking to them, both sides argue that, you know, the ceasefires were broken all of which may be true. But the fact is that without follow-up from the top, from the Security Council, and with UN peace mediators on the ground, there was less chance for these ceasefires to be extended and perhaps for peace negotiations to be properly begun. And the fear now is that the longer we hang around not getting a resolution, then the more the other armed groups will go back to fighting as well, or at least have less and less interest in extending their own These fires.
1: But what's your view on the eventual prospects for that resolution?
3: We'll know more this week. I mean, the latest is that the UN Security Council are going to meet in closed session to have another go at getting the draft. Then, of course, it has to be voted on by the UN. So we may yet get something. This may not happen very fast. It may not be a very good resolution in the end. But probably having this sort of resolution at this point in time is better than not having it at all.
1: Well, especially in the face of the pandemic, especially when a lot of these conflicts are happening in areas that are the least prepared to handle it.
3: Exactly. I mean, the main reason Guterres made this appeal in the first place was that most of these conflicts are happening generally in the poorest countries, the most conflict-ridden countries, are usually with the poorest health systems, the least able to cope with the pandemic. South Sudan, the world's newest country in Africa, where one of the armed groups declared a ceasefire, they have about 12 million people there and four ventilators in the whole country at the last count in mid-April. So these countries are supremely under Prepare to cope with any sort of pandemic. Peace is a very important prerequisite for any healthcare system to work.
1: Richard, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks Jason.
1: For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To get 12 issues for 12 or 12 pounds, just go to economist.com/radiooffer. A vaccine against the coronavirus is still a long way off. So there's another race on to find treatments that might be available sooner. One idea involves giving patients who have COVID-19 a component of blood called plasma from people who have recovered from the disease. And now researchers hope this convalescent plasma could shorten or even stop the progression of the disease.
2: Convalescent blood plasma is the vital bit that has the antibodies that can help bodies
1: fight illness. Vijay Vethiswaran is The Economist's U.S. business editor.
2: It's the prize fighter, as it were, inside our blood, helping us. And transfusing those antibodies from someone that has recovered from COVID-19 might help patients fight off their own infections.
1: And as a potential therapy, is that, is that a new idea?
2: So actually, it's an age-old idea going back more than a century. A hundred years ago, doctors at an American naval hospital administered this as a therapy against a Spanish flu. And they published an academic article saying it had a decided influence in shortening the course of the disease and lowering the mortality. So it's been used for quite a long time. And in in multiple diseases, it has shown some effectiveness. SARS, H1N1, Ebola, and other kinds of outbreaks as well. It's shown varying degrees of effectiveness.
1: And do we know whether it has effectiveness in the case of COVID-19?
2: It's very early days. It has been tried in China but the size of the patient cohorts and the trials that have been published in medical journals were very small. Five patients, 10 patients, that sort of thing. And uh, it did show promising results, but the trials lacked a proper randomized control, which is the gold standard for medical trials. It's now being tried widely throughout the world in a number of countries, uh, because the early experience is that it doesn't hurt. And there's reason from both history medical theory but also some practical
1: observations to think that it might help so what are the trials that are that are going on now what stage are they at
2: there are trials around the world on this use of convalescent plasma Important set of trials are being coordinated by America's Food and Drug Administration, the regulator. They moved with surprisingly fast speed to approve its early use in very ill patients. But then they rapidly expanded the scope to clinical trials that are going to be more rigorous. In early April, a group of 40 top institutions coordinated by the Mayo Clinic, which is a leading institution in America, are doing randomized controlled trials. And I think we're going to find some very important results coming from that effort out of the United States. In Switzerland, they were early on trying both using this approach as well as using it on patients who are less severely affected. Unlike, for example, New York or some other parts of the world where the systems have been flooded, uh, UK, Italy, Spain, Switzerland had not been hard hit by that time. So their hospitals had lots of patients who were only mildly ill with COVID-19. So they have experience with a different part of the curve, as it were, of the disease. This matters because experience from other diseases suggest that giving this kind of antibody plasma early in the course of the treatment is much more effective than giving it late.
1: What about using it, though, before anyone has any signs of COVID at all as a a protection?
2: There is speculation that we may want to give this kind of convalescent plasma to protect people as immunity, even people who are perfectly healthy today, have no signs of COVID. At the moment, there is no evidence that this will work. Some of the question marks are, first of all, will it actually confer immunity on healthy people? But secondly, even if there were to be some immunity conferred, how long would it last? Would it last uh, just a week or two? Would it last months? Part of the problem is that our testing for antibodies in people's blood, as has widely been reported, is not very good. And so when we have a general problem of not being able to know the facts and to do the testing properly, it's quite hard to draw conclusions that, ah, this really worked. Look at the fantastic immunity this healthy person has. Nobody on earth can say that today
1: and supposing that the trials that are underway are successful and this this looks like um, a useful treatment it still requires material from people it, it doesn't sound very scalable this is a
2: very promising let's say short-term measure in the absence of a vaccine however collecting blood from millions of people who themselves have to be tested if you're not tested positive and then recovered for a period of time you're not allowed to donate convalescent plasma for example and getting these people to blood centers, which are able to handle in a manner that doesn't further convey COVID-19 and that respects social distancing, the blood that they need and getting that blood to patients. This is a very fiddly operation, right? This is not something you're going to be able to scale to get to a billion people or two billion people as people need to with vaccines. This, this can be at best a stopgap. But if it works and is shown to work, it could be a, a vital bridge to a longer term solution.
1: And are there any prospects for essentially making those antibodies in a dish if that's the only component of the convalescent plasma that's that's useful?
2: Because these antibodies are proteins, it is possible in theory to make them in the lab. And several biotech companies are working on trying to come up with a product rather than a, a fiddly process that involves taking blood from patients, but a product that can be manufactured and given to patients to boost antibodies this has worked against Ebola, for example, and so there's some evidence that we might be able to do this, and so that could be a promising way, again, to come up with a bridging solution until a, a massive global vaccine can be developed and dispersed.
1: Lots of people are looking for an answer, a, a solution, a uh, something that is as useful as a vaccine. How how promising should we consider this 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 plasma approach in the in the big picture?
2: I think we need. All of the tools in the toolkit to deal with an adversary as complicated and devilish as COVID-19. The long-term aspiration has to be to develop a vaccine as soon as possible, maybe 18 months, to have it as widely dispersed as possible, maybe several billion people. But until we can get there, it's helpful to have multiple drugs that are in development, including antibody treatments that are being developed and in the meanwhile, the short term fix that's already happening at hundreds of hospitals around the world is the generous donation from people who have survived COVID 19, giving up their blood plasma uh, that may be having some mild positive effects, maybe helping those who are very ill and possibly providing some protection for healthcare workers in the future. I think that's a, a very helpful short term step, but we mustn't confuse
1: it for a long term solution. Vijay, thank you very much for your time. Jason, it's been great to be with you. You can find out more about other potential therapeutic treatments for COVID-19 in Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. They live in a castle on one of the smallest of the Channel Islands off Britain's coast. They have an extraordinary business, media, and property empire that includes London's famous Ritz Hotel. They're expert at avoiding publicity, and little is known about them, Even photographs of them are rare. But today, the 85-year-old Barclay brothers will attend a virtual hearing before London's High Court in a case that has laid bare a feud in the reclusive family.
4: The Barclay brothers are David and Frederick.
1: Tom Rowley is our Britain correspondent.
4: They're identical twins born in 1934, 10 minutes apart, to a traveling salesman and his wife. They grew up in a house that was shared with other families in West London and their their father died when they were still quite young. Only a few years later, when they were 16, the boys already started in business. They set up a a painting and decorating business and later moved on into property, building up an extraordinary business portfolio over the next 60 years, ranging from Yodel, a delivery firm, through the Daily Telegraph. And in fact, one estimate recently put their wealth at eight billion pounds. But the jewel of the empire has long been the Ritz Hotel in London.
1: And the Ritz Hotel features in this argument that's now spilling out into the public between them. How has that figured in?
4: Well, the Ritz has a good claim to be the most famous hotel in the world. It's rather over the top. It's all sort of gold trimmings and salmon pink carpets. It opened in 1906 and is best known for its afternoon teas and is featuring all kinds of films. But the brothers have owned it since 1995. And it's the Ritz in particular, which seems to be splitting apart the different wings of the Barclay family.
1: So what exactly are the allegations being made here?
4: So the allegations concern conversations in the Ritz itself, in the conservatory, where Sir Frederick used to enjoy going to relax. And he had a series of conversations with his daughter, Amanda, there. So Sir Frederick and Amanda Barclay claim that these conversations were being recorded by one of Sir Frederick's brother's sons and then shared with two of his other nephews and two other defendants to the
1: case. So Sir Frederick is alleging that recordings were made of his private conversations by his nephew, Sir David's son, and this has now come to the high court. I mean, what are the charges?
4: So, Sir Frederick and Amanda Barclay are bringing a illegal action, and they allege that there's been misuse of private information, breach of confidence, and breach of data protection laws. Clearly, the other members of the Barclay family are going to protest this in court. But in the meantime, all of this is being complicated still further by the sale of the rights. It was sold in March, reportedly, to a Qatar, investor. And this has now become another aspect of the family feud, because Sir Frederick seems unhappy with a deal that was struck, saying that the rich shouldn't have been sold for anything less than a billion pounds.
1: And so, and so what's, what's at stake here for both these, these sides of the family?
4: It's clear that this has now become a a very public rift that they've hoped to keep their affairs under wraps for many years. That is no longer the case. What's probably going to become clear over the next few months as this case develops is the ownership structure of their business empire. And we will see exactly the motivations for this alleged bugging, no doubt, will be argued over in court and more of
1: that will come to light. Do we have any guesses as to why these twin brothers would fall out after all of these years?
4: Well, Sir Frederick and Amanda's barrister said in the last court hearing that we we all remember Tolstoy saying each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I suppose the problem with this particular that unhappy family is that it just happens to involve a large business empire and therefore there are probably all sorts of more reasons for them to to fall out. Um, It's certainly true that the last few years have been a, a difficult time for the Barclays businesses. The Telegraph newspaper group, its profits have been dwindling for many years. Other aspects of their empire as well, including Shop Direct and the delivery firm Yodel, have been under pressure in recent years as well.
1: It must pain them both after all these years of guarding their privacy that now all this should be spilling out into public.
4: I'm sure that's right. Uh, I mean, they're they're 85. Some would argue that they might be better off uh, staying on their Channel Island and putting their feet up. But instead, the world's attention will be back on them today. Uh, It's going to be a, a virtual hearing, but that won't stop journalists packing the virtual press gallery.
1: Tom, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow.